0: six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of this expensive perfume. But one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected to this. Why hasn't this perfume been sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself To whatever was put into it leave her alone jesus replied it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me this is the word of the lord let's pray oh god we pray as you engage us with your word today that we can embrace what you have for us in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Glad you're here today. We are uh, today starting along with the recent beginning of spring, a new teaching series as we prepare for the uh, resurrection season. You know, uh, Easter is just a few weeks away, and so we are looking forward to being thoughtful about the, talking about the events leading up to Jesus' uh, crucifixion and then the events following his ascension. So over the next five or six weeks, we will be wrestling with all of the implications of those things and the narrative of that story. In fact, in three weeks, I want to invite you now, in three weeks we are gathering in Central Park to celebrate Easter. So again, Easter in Central Park this year, 7 a.m. at the Bethesda Fountain. We're going to be out there to celebrate the sunrise service, remembering Jesus' resurrection that morning, and then At 11 o'clock, we we are at the Nomburg Bandshell, and we are just going to be having Easter together. We're going to celebrate the resurrection together. So we hope that you will put on your calendar now, at the very least, those two events, Sunday morning and 11 o'clock at Nomburg Bandshell in Central Park, and we are hoping that it is going to be warm. Are you ready for warm weather? I'm sick of cold weather, although today is pretty nice. So let's just hope that it continues all the way up, until the night, how about 70, 75 degrees for Easter Sunday. Let's vote on that. All in favor, please say aye. aye. Boom, done. There it is. Anyway, we hope that you're there. There are other things coming in preparation for the Friday night, Good Friday. We have a concert here, so many exciting things. Anyway, we hope that you come participate, but we are in the midst or, or the beginning of a teaching series now, wrestling with those events coming up to Jesus Resurrection. And so today we look at a somewhat familiar story, the story of uh, this woman, Mary, who anoints uh, Jesus' feet. Now, this is one of those narratives that show up in all four of the Gospels. This is not true of every story, but in this case, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all record some version of this story of Mary coming and anointing Jesus. Now, in the first century, uh, as Jesus is alluding to here, it was not uncommon for the body of someone who had died to be anointed with expensive perfume. So Jesus has not died yet, but he is uh, alluding to the fact that this is going to happen, and he's also referencing the fact that Mary is kind of doing a little bit of a pre-anointing for his, um, for his burial. Now, it's also helpful to note a little bit about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So apparently, according to the New Testament narrative, these are some very good friends of Jesus. You know, Jesus had a lot of acquaintances, a lot of people that he ran into. He, had, Of course, he had disciples that he was hanging out with all the time for three and a half years. But this family apparently had a special place in Jesus' heart. He would spend time with them when he was visiting Bethany, which was just two miles away from Jerusalem. So when he was traveling to Jerusalem, as he would do potentially up to a couple times of a year, Apparently, he would stop in and hang out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And of course, they had this just incredible experience together where Lazarus had died and Jesus had brought him back to life. So this is a unique relationship that Jesus had with this family. And so in our narrative today, in our story today, we see that Jesus is at their home. And apparently some other dignitaries maybe of the community are there with them. And Jesus is there with his uh, disciples. And so they're all reclining around the table. Uh, Martha is uh, serving, and Mary comes in and anoints Jesus. Now, while the emphasis of the story is on uh, Mary's action, I think our focus today is around Jesus' response. And you have to love Jesus' response. So Mary has, uh, goes about this anointing, and it's a touching moment. But one of Jesus' disciples, as it's mentioned in John, includes a little commentary that this was... Uh, Judas, who was to later to betray Jesus and who was actually stealing from the, the money pot, if you will, and wasn't really worried about the, the, uh, the poor at all. And, and so we see Jesus' response to Judas' uh, complaint, and he's very direct. Leave her alone. you got to love that. Leave her alone. Quit messing with her. Leave her alone. She's doing something uh, beautiful. Just quit bugging her. And here in this response of Jesus, we see that Jesus is far more concerned about his relationship with people than he was about tradition or propriety or, quite frankly, even religion. Jesus is more concerned about his relationships than his religion. He cares about people. And so he's able to tell his, one of his close disciples, leave her alone because he cares about relationship. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus prioritized relationship over propriety or over tradition or even over religion. In Mark chapter uh, 2, we read the story of Jesus and he's with his disciples and it's on the Sabbath day and they're out in the fields and the disciples get a little hungry and so they take some of the the wheat and they're feeding themselves and some of the religious leaders, the leaders of the religion, they look and they are disturbed about that these men who are Uh, eating the wheat because they're they're working and you don't work on the sabbath and so jesus again stands up for relationships he cares about people and he says hey the sabbath was made for men again it's kind of quit messing with my guys the sabbath was made for them not them for the sabbath the sabbath was made for humanity not humanity for the sabbath in fact the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, i.e., I created the Sabbath. It's okay if my guys are eating wheat on the Sabbath. Quit messing with them. Uh, We read again that Jesus is having dinner. This is in Matthew chapter 9 at Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners came out to eat with him for the dinner. And when the religious leaders saw this, again, the religious leaders had their eye on Jesus. When the religious leaders saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These are the undesirables of the culture, of the community. Um, On hearing this, so Jesus overhears this, Jesus says, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, Jesus, again, is very much invested in people and relationship with people and when religion gets in the way of that when tradition gets in the way of that when when propriety gets in the way with that he is always going with relationship uh, finally in John chapter 4 we read a story about Jesus a familiar story Jesus comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar and he is there and there's a woman so he and this woman they have this gave she's Samaritan He's a, a Jew. They usually would not communicate with each other both because she's a woman and he's a man and in the culture, that's just not how it worked. And, uh, and they're both from this, these different regions. And so he engages and has a conversation with her and she is surprised that someone like himself, especially a rabbi, a teacher, would do this. And yet again, Jesus is more concerned about relationship than about religion, than about tradition, than about priority in all of Jesus' actions we see that this is true. Jesus is invested in relationships. He cares about people so much so that one of his compatriots raises a complaint and he can say quit messing with her or stop bugging them about what they're doing. Jesus invested in relationship. Now, if Jesus is the example of followers of Jesus or Christians, then I think what we read here is actually rather challenging because the implications are if Jesus is invested in relationships and prioritizes relationships, then the follower of Jesus is supposed to do the same, that we are to be invested in people, to care about people, to, to invest in our relationships with each other. And yet we have so many things in our lives, in our, in our culture, in every aspect of who we are that are competing with our, the, the tension of prioritizing our relationships that this is innately difficult uh, for us. Prioritizing relationships is uh, challenging. Being people-centric, uh, focusing on those people that we uh, care about, those people that we should care about can be incredibly, incredibly challenging in our, in our current lives. We have so many competing priorities and there's so much going on in our lives that sometimes our relationships Take second, third, fourth uh, place and we really aren't following this example of Jesus who was willing to prioritize his relationships and really stick his neck out there by standing up for people because he was invested in them and so this issue of our priorities is related by the way not only to ourselves but to or not only to our relationship with other people but our relationship with to God and our relationship to ourselves the truth is that we probably have a hard time not only with our relationships and prioritizing them with other people, but prioritizing our relationship with God and even prioritizing our relationship with ourselves. So what is behind this? What, what, where does our, our problem lie? What, what's the challenge that inhibits us from prioritizing our relationships uh, over other things? So that's the the question today, what is it inhibiting us from prioritizing relationships, our relationship with other people, people we care about, our relationship with God and even our relationship with ourselves. Now I think there are a bunch of responses to that but I have a few prepared for you today. What is it that inhibits our ability to prioritize our relationships with other people, with God, and with ourselves? First of all, our belief in our own self-sufficiency. Uh, we, we, and I think in a place like New York in particular, where we're all, you know, at some level struggling to, to make it to, to have enough to, to live, to work, to pay for our apartment, and so on. We have this sense that we really have to take care of ourselves and that we are on our own and nobody else is going to stand up for us. Nobody else is going to give us anything. Nobody else is going to uh, take care of us. And at some level that is true. Your, 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 your neighbor, your workmate, they're probably not going to provide for you and the things that you need. And yet, and yet uh, Jesus himself in his most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 6 says this, to all of us, not just the people in his day, but to, to followers of him today, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you wear. Listen, life is more important than food, and your body is more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the pigeons. It says, look at the pigeons. They don't sow or reap or or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father takes care of them. Aren't you much more valuable than the pigeons? any one of you by worrying at worrying at a single hour to your life see Jesus is being very clear look look you think that you are you have to be self-sufficient that you're out there on their, your own you're trying to make it on your own and so the emphasis on doing that takes away from your relationships with other people because you're so worried about just keeping your own head above the water but Jesus is like look God has got things taken care of your your basic needs are going to be uh, cared for don't worry about your life what you'll eat what you'll drink what you're wearing. So this, this, this uh, mentality that we've got to take care of ourselves, we've got to provide for ourselves, we've got to work just bonkers hours if we're going to survive, uh, Jesus is kind of contradicting that and saying, look, I'm going to take care of uh, things ultimately. By the way, I mean, this is one of the cool th- ideas behind Sabbath, right? I mean, Sabbath is, an, uh, is a time when we come together and we acknowledge, or maybe we don't even come together, even if we don't come together, we acknowledge that Sabbath is a day when we are almost revolutionary. We're saying, you know, six days a week, I'm a part of commerce, I've got to work, and that work goes to take care of myself, but on the Sabbath, I am acknowledging, I'm stopping to do all those things to acknowledge that ultimately, ultimately, what I do and my work isn't really providing for all of my needs, that God is the one who provides for our needs, and the Sabbath is is a message of that, We are stopping of providing for ourselves, and we are embracing the reality that God is our ultimate provider, that God is the creator. All of the the, uh, Sabbath commands, by the way, go back to this idea that God creates things. God is ultimately in control, and so when we come together here or when we're by ourselves or whatever we're doing when we're celebrating Sabbath, the message is God is in charge. God has got you in his hands. God is going to take care of things, and you don't need to worry then. I mean, that's what Sabbath is about. Don't worry. I don't know what your finances are like right now. I don't know where you are in, in your experience uh, with, with, and what's challenging you. But Sabbath is the time to recognize that God is in charge. And so we are not self-sufficient. We have a God who has promised that he will take care of our needs. And so yet, yet, we allow this belief in our self-sufficiency to get in the way of prioritizing relationships, because we're spending so much time just trying to take care of ourselves that that inhibits our healthy relationship with God, with others, and even with ourselves. Secondly, listen, let's be honest. Sometimes our ambition gets in the way of a healthy prioritization of our relationships with others. Now, success is a, is a good thing. Let's be successful. Amen, amen to that. God is into success. But when we allow our desire to be Successful to inhibit our healthy relationship with other people, then something is out of whack. Again, Jesus' model is people-centric. His relationship with others, he was willing to stick his neck out for that. He was willing to tell his even his closest advisors and friends to, to to stop their negativity because he was focused on a relationship with his brothers and sisters in humanity. And yet sometimes our ambition inhibits our own ability to uh, do this. Success is a good thing, but when we allow success to affect our relationship with people that we need to be invested in, and including ourselves and including God, this is a problem. I, I saw a great uh, documentary, Free Solo. Lori was talking about uh, rock climbing. Lori, have you seen Free Solo yet? Has anyone seen Free Solo? It's the story of Alex Holnode. What's that? It's a, on Netflix. It's not on Netflix yet, but it's coming. Yes, yes. Wait till it comes to Netflix. Anyway, it's it's a great documentary on this guy Alex Honnold, and he is a rock climber, and he's a, a, a free soloist. And these people go and climb rocks with no no ropes. That's why I was jokingly asking Lori if you climbed with no ropes, and then you said you did. So you're you're a solo, you're a free soloist out there on 125th Street in Harlem, just climbing the rocks, boom. Anyway, Alex goes a little bit higher, so he's famous for climbing El Capitan in in Yosemite National Park without ropes, never had been done before, did it in three and a half hours. The first people to climb them took 58 days. He took three and a half hours to climb this incredible... Have you heard this story? You know what I'm talking about? The film is terrifying. I saw it in IMAX. It's absolutely terrifying. Spoiler alert. No spoiler alert. I won't tell you what happens. He lives. It's fine. Everybody knows that. He's around. He didn't die. It would have been a terrible film. But it's terrifying because he's out on this mountain climbing and there are no ropes. I mean, and, that, I mean, and he's on with his fingers and he could fall to his death at any moment. It's horrific. Anyway, he has. of course, he has relationships with the people. He's very, very close with many of the most famous climbers in the world. He, during, the, during the film... He, uh, he starts dating a girl, and they become pretty serious. Um, all of these people are just absolutely terrified by, by what he's doing, but he has ambition to, be, to do this thing that nobody has ever done in human history, and so he spends literally his life for the period of two, three years. I mean, he's been free freestilling for, for many years, just preparing for this incredible, incredible climb, and his friends are all, even the, these great climbers, are all just terrified Every, every time he goes out there, you're imagining, I mean, 40 of his friends have died d- doing climbing like this. So it's just, you're, you're, you're living on the edge. Anyway, anyway, this is a guy who has prioritized his ambition to climb this rock over all of his relationships. And I mean, it is what it is. He they made a movie about him and won the Academy Award. But I don't know what kind of life th- this is. His girlfriend is just completely terrified. She asks him, you know, will you, basically, will you prioritize me over climbing? And he says, I mean, this bro is cold. He says, no. I mean, (laughs) uh, anyway, anyway, ambition. Ambition can inhibit our relationship with others. The reality is that his friends and even his girlfriend, I mean, the relationship, there are some barriers there. Because when you know that you're your significant other is prioritizing something that could potentially kill you over that it's going to it's going to create barriers anyway we have the, the tendency to do the same we have ambition for our careers we have ambition for our lives whatever and sometimes we allow that to inhibit a healthy relationship with people who care about us and so we prioritize our ambition to succeed over our relationship with people that love us and so this is a challenge. This is one of the reasons why we have a difficult time with priorities. Uh, thirdly, we uh, sometimes uh, our desire gets in the way of what we uh, really want. So our, our our relationships are inhibited by the fact that we want what we want, and our desires inhibit us really from prioritizing healthy relationships again with each other, with God, and with ourselves. We see this in in the response of Judas here, right? So you know, the perfume is, 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 um, has been used to the, for the anointing, and Judas' immediate response is apparently thinking about himself. At least that's John's inclination to believe. Judas says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? But then John uh, references what was really going on. Listen, uh, don't be fooled. Judas wasn't being altruistic. Judas used to take money out of the out of the, the bag of donations for himself. And so sometimes we let our desire to get what we want get in our way of prioritizing our relationships with uh, people. Finally, finally, sometimes we uh, prioritize other things over our relationship because we just aren't intentional about our relationships. And this is uh, supported by our contemporary Uh, culture. You know, there are so many compelling distractions that compete with healthy relationships in our current time that investing in relationships can be really immensely uh, difficult. Do you guys have smartphones? Who has a smartphone? I have a smartphone right here. Do you remember before, look, uh, like how two of you sheepishly raised your hands? Give me a break. Almost everyone has some kind of phone like, like this. Maybe it's not this one. But do you remember before, if you go back, to, you know this is only 12 years old. You know what we had 12 years ago, 13 years ago, if we could go back? We had a flip phone. You know what you did with a flip, you know what you didn't do with a flip phone? You didn't go out to dinner with somebody and look at your flip phone the entire time while you were at dinner with them. Unless you were insane. Who, was, who looks at their flip phone? It's just numbers. There's nothing to look at. It was so boring. Our phones now are so compelling. I mean, I know not to pick on t- technology, but there are so many things that are drawing our attention that the reality is it's very hard to invest or, 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 or in, in relationships even when we're with people that we care about because we're obsessed with uh, other things. There's so many compelling other things and so it's incredibly difficult unless we are intentional to really build our, our relationships with other people, with God with ourselves i mean how many times if i'm honest you know have i sat down and i thought to myself you know i've got a moment it doesn't happen that enough or that often i've got a moment to just have some time for my to build my relationship with myself and so i'm sitting there and i think to myself see, i'm very ambitious and i think to myself i should read a book you guys remember books <laughs> wow books amazing and so I think I, I'm going to read a book and so I sit down and I'm going to have this time to build my relationship with myself and then, you know, like two seconds go by and I'm like, you know, maybe I should just, the baseball season, maybe I should just check the score of the, the game. I'm an Orioles fan. Will you guys pray for me? It's going to be a long season. It's going to be a long season. Um, anyway, the, it's, there's so many other compelling things to take away from our, our, uh, our intentionality of working on our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with God. I mean, let's be honest, how's your, how's your God time? Is that, is that challenged by, by other things? I mean, if you're not intentional about your relationship with God, the other things are going to come in there and they're going to f- affect our ability to really have a healthy and whole relationship with God, ourselves, and each other. And so this lack of intentionality has an impact on our ability to prior- prioritize our relationships with others. This is just the, the reality. By the way, I'm trying to. I was, you know, at, at 9 a.m. service, I was really proud of myself. I said, you know, I'm gonna, my goal is to read two books a month. It's a noble goal, because I'm trying to read. I'm gonna read two books a month. And then my good friend, Kathleen Boguski, reminded me that she has already read. I, I shouldn't say, I don't sound like she was being snarky anyway. I asked her because I knew. Kathleen, how many books have you read this month? And she said 26. She's already, it's March, she's already read 26 books. Anyway, I've read five, so wah, wah, wah. Anyway, um, when we're not intentional and we don't prioritize our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with God, things will get in the way. We will find other compelling things uh, to do and so all of these are, are, are challenges for us as we see Jesus as the example I mean he prioritized relationships and yet the reality is for us it's difficult prioritizing relationships are difficult because we focus on our own self-sufficiency we have ambition to succeed we want we, what we want and we desire what we want and sometimes that conflicts with uh, healthy relationships and then we're just not intentional about relationships oftentimes And yet again, the good news is that Jesus is the model. Jesus has done what we have not been able to do. Jesus prioritized healthy relationships in his his experience. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read that since the children have flesh and blood, since humanity has flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. So we see in the narrative to Jesus, of the story of Jesus, that God, who cared so much about relationships, that he was willing to, to make himself one of us, to be engaged with us in a very particular and very specific way, that he became one and he lived among us, that he was a, a person, that he was a human. And so uh, Jesus has been at the forefront of his experience, having relationships, healthy relationships, uh, where they should be in his experience. He was intentional. He didn't put other things. He he recognized that his sufficiency comes from God, and so he was invested in healthy relationships. We also read in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed that Jesus understood that his relationship with God and even himself was incredibly important. So he took time where he withdrew to to lonely places. Sometimes you need to be in a lonely place to really be able to focus on your relationship with yourself and with a God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The story of the Bible when it comes to relationships is that God is one who is invested in the human story and cares and and makes intentional his experience to be engaged with us in relationship. You know, in, in the ancient uh, divine myths, uh, many of them, you know, Greeks or whatever, uh, the gods and, and, and humanity had this, like, uh, relationship that was not okay. You know, oftentimes the, the, the picture is that the gods were kind of irritated that they had made humanity. Um, they were a little bit sometimes bumbling themselves, but, but uh, humanity was kind of in the way. They were irritants. They had gone off on their own, and so you have this antagonistic relationship between the gods and uh, humanity, that the relationship wasn't healthy. It wasn't whole, and it maybe even wasn't designed that way, and the gods were just upset ab- about humanity. But in the story of the Bible, we have a completely different picture. We have a God who's really invested in the human story, who isn't irritated at the fact that things have gone off the, off the rails, but who wants to fix things, who wants to make things right. And so the story of, of Jesus is God investing himself in human history, putting uh, religion, putting tradition, putting propriety to the side because he was focused on relationship. His relationship with the Godhead, but also his relationship with humanity. The story of the Bible is a God who cares about humanity. I mean, God refers to himself. As a, as, a, as a parent, a loving parent. The picture here is that God really, really is invested in this relationship, that we as his kids, that he cares about us. I spent two weeks uh, traveling just a couple, just last week, a couple weeks ago. And you know, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I do not have God-like tendencies in any way, but I will admit that after two weeks on the road, the thing that I was most looking forward to was getting back to see my wife and my kids because I'm invested in, in, in that relationship. And so I'm away, and I'm thinking about the time when I'm going to hang out with Jude and Levi and Susanna and Sarah. That's, that's, that was the desire of my heart, even though I was out in 80-degree Los Angeles. I wanted to be back hanging out with my kids. And this is the picture of God by referring himself to as a, as a father, as a loving parent, is giving us the message that he cares about this relationship. In fact, he has prioritized his relationship with us above almost everything else. A God who cares about relationships, a God who is not irritated or annoyed about this creation, but is invested so much so that he will come and engage us in a way that gives us hope for a new future. How about Revelation chapter 21, the end of the Bible, the end of the narrative story, this idea of God prioritizing relationship. In Revelation chapter 21, this is John again. Our text of emphasis comes from the book of John. Revelation is written again by John, and he's seeing this vision of things that are to come, and he says this at the end of the book. So this is toward the end of the Bible. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, another relational metaphor there, bride and, and husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, this is a picture of a God who is invested in relationships, so much so that the longing of his heart is to bring his city so that he can dwell with his people. This is a God who has been separated from his kids and cannot wait To get back together with them so much so that he's prepared a place and he's going to bring that place and they're going to all live with him and he says we're going to dwell together we're going to live together that's the cry of the heart of the God of the Bible and that's the reason that Jesus came Jesus came to show a God who is invested in human relationships who cares about relationships who is willing to stand up for the people that he he loves for who say stop stop talking about her that way Stop messing with my disciples. They're just eating the food I created the Sabbath for them, not them for the Sabbath. God who cares about relationship. This is the passion of God, and it's his passion that we would also have a desire in our heart for a healthy relationship with him, with each other, and even with ourselves. And the good news is because Jesus has done what he's done, that because he lived a healthy and whole relationship with God, with himself, and with his brothers and sisters in humanity, us, we have hope that as we embrace God's work in Jesus, God can start transforming our priorities. You see, we have a very, very difficult time changing our priorities. I mean, I can come and we can all talk about the fact that, boy, it's really hard to invest in relationships, and, and uh, by the way, I know some of you are, are stressed about relationships right now. You know that you have a relationship and things aren't as it should be, and you would really like to get it fixed out and make every, fixed up and, and make everything right, but the reality is that's going to be challenged because you have some innate issues of your own. Maybe you're ambitious about things and you're investing too much time and you're spending you know, 90 hours at work, and you don't have time for the love, your your loved ones, and yet changing your priorities is, inc- is incredibly difficult. Well, the good news is Jesus has done what we have not, and as we embrace Jesus' work and recognize our own failings, God is able to come in us and start making changes and do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We are not going to get ourselves fixed on our own. Can I take just a little side note here? This is a, just bear with me just a second. I read an article. That disturbs, disturbed me. It, it, was, um, it was in a, an Adventist... Public. This is just an a little, little Adventist moment for us today. I, know, I recognize not everybody here is Adventist or even know what that means. And you just wandered in here and you're like, who are these weird people? And, and you're like, okay, Well, anyway. So let's just have a, a, an Adventist moment for just a second. So bear with me if you're feeling like you don't get this. But there was a, a survey done apparently on... Uh, the Adventist church, 65,000, which I think is incredible, 65,000 people were surveyed. I don't know how you survey 65,000, that's a lot of people, Uh, these Adventists across the, the world. So this is the world church, this is 18 million Adventists, and this article shares some of the data. And then kind of off on the side, it mentions what I think is maybe the most disturbing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Are you ready for this? disturbing. The, 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 the author says this, after, after exclaiming all these beautiful things about the data that they received, it says, there were some issues, though, with the data that were identified. While it was great to see the depth of support for the Adventist health message, so people were saying, like, boy, the Adventist health message is great. If you're Adventist, if you're not, you can read about it or we'll tell you about the health message. Basically, the idea is, like, you know, God designed our bodies, and we should be thoughtful about how we treat them, and we should be healthy, basically. Uh, So this is, well, it's great to see the depth of support for the Adventist health message about, buckle your seatbelt, about 47% of the global respondents to this survey believed that if they keep the health message, i.e., if they eat healthfully, they would be guaranteed salvation. I give up. What have we done? Is that... That's a mess back there, by the way. Um, half of the Adventist church, apparently, according to this survey, believes that if you eat healthfully, your salvation is Guaranteed. This is the opposite of good news. This is that if you get yourself together, if you eat more healthily or in the context of our conversation, if you fix your relationships and you start prioritizing things properly, then you will be guaranteed salvation. Friends, we're never going to get it together. You're going to never live as healthily as you possibly could. I mean, be healthy. Don't get me wrong. I love some Adventist health Message. I love that, but the idea that through our action, through our behavior, through our diet, we are somehow going to guarantee our rescue, something is broken there. You are never going to get it together on your own. You are never going to fix your relationship problems. You are never going to to, to eat healthily enough that you will guarantee your salvation. That's just not how it works. If that was the case, Jesus didn't need to come. See, Jesus could stay there because all you have to do is eat properly, all you have to do is get every, whatever area in your life is screwed up, just fix that, and everything's going to be okay. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're not going to do that. That's the bad news of the gospel. You're not going to fix yourself. You might get yourself you know, in fairly good shape, but you're not going to fix all the problems. The only hope that we have is rooted in God's work through Jesus. Jesus has done for us what we have not been able to, to do. Jesus prioritized his relations properly, not just once, not just tomorrow or yesterday or when... Jesus lived with the right priorities. And because he has done that, as we acknowledge and embrace what he's done and we invite God to work in us, God is enabled to put his spirit inside of us, it's a little mysterious, and start working and making changes in us that we will never make because we eat a healthy diet or because we fix whatever else we feel like is wrong with our experience. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The great hope is rooted in God's work in Jesus. As we acknowledge and embrace his work, God is enabled to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then the words of Galatians chapter 5 will be true. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your own hard work, not of the fruit of you getting it together and figuring out what you should be doing and what you were doing wrong and then fixing it. The fruit of the Spirit, that's God's Spirit working in you, is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think about how many of those things are related to our relationships with each other, our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that come from God's Spirit working in us. They don't come because we figure out one day that we need to get it together. They come because we at some point say, God, I'm not going to get it together, and I need your help. Help me. And as you do that, God is able to work in you to do what you can't do. As we're thoughtful over the next few weeks and months about God's work through Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Him resting in the grave for three days, and His resurrection and ascension May God do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. May he reveal to us our own lack, our lack of ability to get it together on our own. May he help us to understand that our broken relationships that we are part of, that we're affected by all these things like ambition, and we're distracted, and we're not really living the healthy kind of relationships that we we need to live. And may he do in us what we can't do for ourselves. Help us to reprioritize our lives. May he reorient reorient us to, to live in a new way through his spirit working within us. Say this confession with me. Jesus, I believe in you and the power of your resurrection. Help me this is where it starts every day, a simple confection. I can't do it on my own. Help me. May God help us and fill us with his spirit. In him we pray. Amen.